Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranaut. Today we have another installment of A Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Specifically, we're going to continue talking about first Terranaut, Gene Kranz. We left Gene Kranz and the NASA team in late 1960 after the disastrous four-inch flight of a Redstone rocket. The team was under the gun from the U.S. government and the American people, and behind the Soviets in their quest to put a man in orbit around the Earth. Gene Kranz, the newly appointed procedures controller, was confronting the magnitude of the job he'd been given by operations and flight director Chris Kraft. And that problem was how to control the spacecraft once it left the launch pad. The four-inch flight had been a wake-up call not only because of the problem with the rocket, that was bad enough, but once understood was fairly easily rectified. No, the problem for Kranz was the way the failure had been dealt with in real time. To put it bluntly, it had been a pretty amateur performance by the flight control team. To put it in perspective, the flight itself lasted a couple of seconds, excluding the ejection of the escape tower from the launch vehicle, but understanding what had happened, even initially, took several minutes, which was longer than the flight actually should have lasted. Figuring out what to do once they had figured out what had happened literally took hours, and resolving it ended up requiring waiting with a live, fueled, and pressurized rocket on the launch pad overnight, because the team did not dare approach the rocket in that condition and they had no means to make it safe remotely, and all the while the parachutes ejected from the capsule dangled, catching the breeze and threatening at any moment to topple the rocket over and cause an explosion. By morning, the batteries had depleted and the tanks had depressurized and the rocket could be approached and put into safe condition. Talk about being behind the power curve. For the uninitiated, behind the power curve is a description that pilots use to describe a situation where you're stuck responding to what the aircraft is doing and being led by it, rather than flying it where you want to go. To Kranz, it was clear that in this case, the hardware was in control. The humans in the flight control team were not much better than spectators for a large portion of the process. And that was unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. And for good reason. To understand why this was so much of a problem and how much of a challenge it was to overcome, we do need to understand not only the nature of the task that Project Mercury was trying to accomplish, but also the tools that the Mercury control team had to work with. The task they were trying to accomplish, simply, was to launch a rocket with a spacecraft containing a human being from one point on the planet to lift that spacecraft beyond the atmosphere and to accelerate it to sufficient velocity to stay in orbit around the planet. That, in itself, as we have spent a number of episodes discussing, was a daunting task. But they also had to monitor and control that spacecraft while it circled the Earth at 20,000 kilometers an hour. And, 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 they had to get it back on the planet safely without burning to a crisp in the atmosphere, and at a place reasonably close to the one of their choosing. To put in perspective the magnitude of that challenge, let's remind ourselves of the state of what we now call communications and control technology in 1960. For anyone born in the latter half of the last century, this was a completely different universe. 
We are so used to living in a connected world that it actually takes effort of will to remember when you could not communicate with just about anyone or anything you wanted to with very little effort and with really no extra added infrastructure. We live in a world in which not only our computers, but our cars and even our home appliances tell us what they are doing and if they're not able to do it the way we want them to. If you work in any profession that deals with testing and analysis, you probably are used to having the problem of drowning in too much data. Just about every instrument, sensor, or processor comes with an included solution for telling you what it's doing at several thousand or several million times a second. In the space business, we've gotten used to being able to communicate with spacecraft on orbit all the time, from anywhere on the planet. It was not so in 1960. In 1960, there was no digital technology. Well, there was, but it was in its infancy, and it wasn't really available outside of a laboratory. In 1960, there was only analog technology, but they didn't even call it that because there was nothing to distinguish it from. There was no, or very limited, multiplexing. Effectively, every instrument you wanted to read got its own signal, which consisted of a single voltage level that could be extracted on the ground and sent to either an analog meter or to a strip chart recorder. Long-distance communication was still very much in its early stages as well. Telephone signals were carried only by wire, over land and under the ocean. Wireless communication was possible with radios, but it was really restricted to voice communication. In order to read an instrument at a distance, you had to somehow encode its reading into what was intended to carry an audio signal, which made it very sensitive to any noise on the signal. Anything that sounded like static in an audio signal would be bad data in a telemetry stream. Critically as well, communications were basically limited to line of sight. So, if, for instance, you're communicating with a spacecraft, you could talk to it when it was overhead, and you could talk to the occupant, and you could read a very limited amount of telemetry. Other than that, you were completely blind and deaf. You could, and NASA did, create a network, or more actually a necklace, of sites around the globe that could see and communicate with the spacecraft when it was overhead. But these sites were networked together basically by telephone wires that converged on the Goddard Space Flight Center outside of Washington. Sometimes they had to be patched together by physically moving a connector from one jack to another. There was really very little means of transmitting data between the sites other than by voice. Well, that's not entirely true. There was teletype, which represented cutting-edge technology in 1960, despite the fact that it had been invented a century before. Teletype was basically a way of sending or receiving telegraph messages originally so that you didn't have to have operators trained in Morse code. Essentially, teletype machines could use normal telephone wires and send their codes using a system that was similar to the way rotary telephones of the time worked. Yes, we had rotary telephones then. Essentially, a teletype machine sent its codes by breaking up its signal with a series of interruptions so that it transmitted a number of pulses in the signal. In effect, the system automated the sending and distribution of typed messages. At one end, an operator typed a message. The teletype machine encoded it and sent it on an audio line that could then be unencoded at other stations and printed out on paper. 
the system could transmit about 60 words a minute. Maybe a bit more if the line was particularly clear. But that was the entire bandwidth of the NASA Global Communications Network in 1961. 60 words a minute. With this technology, NASA had to create a system that would track, monitor, and help control a spacecraft traveling around the Earth at over 20,000 kilometers per hour. So, to monitor these flights, NASA had the aforementioned necklace of stations around the Earth along the planned trajectory of the spacecraft. There were 21 sites, 13 of which were manned. They were chosen to provide optimal coverage for the first three orbits. After that, orbital precession would move the spacecraft trajectory progressively farther towards the edge of the coverage zones. Cable connections stretch from the U.S. to London, Hawaii, and Australia. The major stations were situated at the points where there might be major go-no-go decisions and, of course, the site of the planned deorbit maneuver. These included Bermuda, Australia, Hawaii, Mexico, and the California coast. These sites were all augmented by an astronaut who acted as CAPCOM, or Capsule Communicator. The smaller remote sites included the Canary Islands, Nigeria, Zanzibar, and Canton Island, as well as, literally, ships at sea in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans. These minor tracking stations were manned by a staff of three, two Philco employees, and one NASA Capcom. Almost all the NASA Capcoms were young graduates. For many, it was their first job. Each site would have a six- to eight-minute window when they could receive telemetry and messages from orbit and send command and messages back. The stations were connected to the comm center at Goddard, which then routed the connections between them. Each station had a teletype machine that constantly spat out messages from Mercury Control in Florida and all the other tracking and control stations. Gene Kranz said, quote, The system was a daily crapshoot, susceptible to a variety of problems. When communications failed, the remote site teams were on their own, improvising and taking any action necessary during the period the capsule was in view to restore contact, unquote. In addition to putting together a tracking and control network, the likes of which had never been tried before, the Mercury Project also had to figure out how to adapt to a brand new kind of flight control. Many of the staff arriving at Mercury Control had some experience with high-speed flight testing. The science of aeronautics was also exploding at that time because World War II had not only produced the first rocket, but also the first jet aircraft. In the 15 years since the end of World War II, the frontier of aviation had rapidly expanded past the sound barrier and continued to advance into the unknown territory on a regular basis. So there were plenty of engineers who, like Gene Kranz, arrived at NASA with a background in high-speed flight testing. But there was a fundamental difference. When a problem occurred during an aircraft flight test, there was usually an opportunity to stop the test, put the aircraft in a safe or semi-safe configuration, and either return to base or land at a different airport. In a worst case, the pilot could eject and live to fly another day when the, even if the aircraft was lost. None of those options were available for a spacecraft. Flight controllers had to figure out how to deal with a vehicle which was going to keep going, more or less where it had been aimed, 
and from which there really was no escape. Even premature termination of the mission could only be done at very specific times on orbit to ensure that the capsule landed in places where it could be recovered by the Navy task groups that were at sea waiting for it. And, and, half the time, the capsule was literally on the other side of the planet from you. And even when it was overhead, it only took eight minutes to go from one horizon to another. It put a huge premium on planning ahead, on working out as many contingencies ahead of time as possible, and on rapid assessment of issues that could be quickly distilled into a set of viable options for continuing to operate the spacecraft while planning to bring its occupant home safely. This required a number of things. First of all, it required a comprehensive knowledge of the spacecraft systems and systems engineering. Flight controllers needed not only to understand their systems, but also, in detail, how they interacted with all of the other systems. Secondly, it required constant planning for failure through questioning, analysis, and simulation. Flight controllers needed to think about how failures would be presented to them through their data, and they needed to determine how to find the cause and understand what could be done about it. And, since failures often affected more than one system, and solutions almost always required the participation of more than one member of the flight control team, they had to learn how to work together, and to paraphrase Rudyard Kipling's famous line, keep their heads when all about them were losing theirs and blaming it on them. And so, they spent a lot of time in meetings. Seriously, you knew that was going to come up eventually on this podcast, right? But really, they did. They spent a lot of time going over what could go wrong and how it would look when it did and what the right things to do were and in the right order. As Gene Kranz said, quote, I had left behind a world where airplanes were flying at roughly five miles a minute. In this new, virtually uncharted world, we would be moving at five miles per second. During a mission countdown or even a flight test, so many things would be happening so fast that you did not have any time for second thought or argument. You wanted the debate behind you. So before the mission, you held meetings to decide what to do if anything went wrong. Unquote. So they would have the meeting and they would write those things down in an ever-growing binder of flight rules that gradually became the Bible. And here it's probably worth making a side note about the term go. The concept of the go-no-go no, go decision certainly did not originate with NASA, but I do think that it was NASA that turned go into a noun. Because there were so many points in a countdown where many members of the team had to all look at the same data and contribute to the decision of whether to go or not, a go or a no-go, it became routine to poll the room and ask the team if they were ready to proceed. Controllers, naturally, would respond with the word go if they agreed with the, with, that it was possible to continue. Pretty soon, a go became a thing in itself, and flight directors would ask for a go when they wanted to know if flight controllers were ready to proceed. In fact, the introduction of this podcast is one of the most famous of these episodes. In case you didn't know, 
The intro is, in fact, Gene Kranz polling the Apollo 11 control room to decide if they can proceed with the deorbit burn that will take Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on their way to the moon's surface. Imagine what it would have been like to give one of those goes. In fact, in the clip, Kranz double-checks with his network controller because they've been having so much trouble with bad data that he had mentally decided he would not make the decision to go until all of the networks were working and giving clean data because it was too important a moment for MCC not to be able to see what was happening. As you hear in the clip, networks was go. And so they went. And the rest, as they say, is history. So at any rate, how, how do you get to this level of preparedness? Well, the first answer is you study. You study and you analyze. You study and you analyze and you assimilate. Kranz came up with an excellent method for forcing his team to do this. He divided up the capsule systems and assigned one to each controller or team of control. He told them to go away and learn everything they could about the system and to document it, and then to come back and brief the rest of the team who would ask questions and dissect the analysis. In so doing, he not only divided up the workload and ensured that all of the systems would be documented in detail, but he also forced at least one member of the team to learn the subject so well that he could teach everyone else about it. Uh, sort of the systems engineering version of the medical school principle of uh, see one, do one, teach one. But a detailed technical understanding of the spacecraft and its systems was not really enough. The team also needed to put that knowledge to use in practical scenarios. And so, they spent a lot of time in simulated missions, or SIMs, as they're known in the business. Then, as now, they likely spent more time in simulated missions than they spent in real ones. Then, as now, the SIMs could be both grueling and humbling. When done right, a SIM creates enough uh, immersion, to use the modern term, to allow you to get lost in the process and actually feel like you were there. That's why high-fidelity SIMs, then and now, use the actual mission control facility and involve the whole mission control team and the actual crew. The idea is to create at least some version of the tension that will be felt on the actual day. Flight controllers need to be invested in the outcome. It needs to matter whether or not the simulation is successful. Sims are not like uh, playing a game. They need to be a real dress rehearsal for the real thing. It needs to matter when things fail. The whole idea of the Sims is to fail early and fail often so that everyone can learn from the experience and so new mission rules can be written to avoid the failure in the future. Now, simulation supervisor, or sim soups, as they are known at NASA, therefore become a very critical position. Good sim soups were both revered and, frankly, hated by flight control teams. They were seen as shadowy masters of the black arts, whose work was essential, but who, it was generally felt, took way too much glee in discovering ever more creative ways to mess with the minds of the mere mortals on the flight control team. Mission preparation, at some level, became a competition between flight controllers and the SimSoups team. The objective was not to find ways to make the system break irretrievably. That, that really wasn't that hard. The job was actually to introduce a scenario where a solution was possible, 
but only if the right decisions were made in the right order at the right time. Post-SIMD briefings were, and I and are, I suspect, notoriously brutal affairs as the SIM team explains the usually very simple solution that was sitting right under the flight control team's nose, if only they had had the wits to see it. But when it works right, as the mission preparation continues, the Sim Soup and his team have to work harder and harder to get a win. The flight controllers become wise to the ways in which the system can fool them and hide the obvious solutions. They learn, in effect, how to go virtually to space with their spacecraft and to understand it when they have only remote telemetry to listen to it. In fact, in the early days of Mercury, even the fine art of spacecraft simulation was in its infancy and subject to the constraints of the technology of the time. Imagine trying to simulate a spacecraft flight for multiple stations across the planet who all had to be experiencing the same failure at the same time and then to try and assimilate their reaction to their failure at the same time while being connected by telephone and teletype. In those days, the SIM team actually prepared a set of magnetic tapes, one for each station involved in the SIM, and sent them physically to each site. Then, at SIM start, the stations were instructed to effectively press play at the same time so everyone's instruments would see the same simulated data. As you can imagine, there were many, many ways in which this could go horribly wrong, and it did including stations using the wrong tapes or starting them at the wrong time. And then what if the flight control team took actions that weren't anticipated by the simulators, and so the data did not react correctly to their inputs, at which point everybody, including the simulators, started making it up as they went along. It was not a great simulation environment. But it was all the Mercury team had, and so they made the most of it. And with all that going on in the background, they still had to actually get some rockets off the launch pad. From December 1960 through March of 1961, the team launched one suborbital Redstone flight a month, including Mercury Redstone 2, at the end of January that launched and successfully recovered a chimpanzee named Ham. All of these flights were successful, and with the global tracking system declared operational at the end of March, the team headed back to Cape Canaveral in April for the first unmanned orbital test flight, which would be followed by the first manned U.S. spaceflight, Mercury Redstone 3. Tension was already running high. The pace was, frankly, breakneck. I look at the schedule honestly. I don't know how they managed to keep up that cadence of launches while also preparing to go from suborbital to orbital flights. I think Gene Krantz is right when he says that it was a pace that would simply not have been contemplated today. But, again, as the saying goes, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. It is hard for us to imagine how those early NASA pioneers felt. As far as they were concerned, they were literally in a fight to the finish to win the space race. It wasn't just a matter of pride. For them, it was genuinely a question of national security. A lot was at stake. And frankly, they were losing. And then it suddenly got worse. A lot worse. On the 12th of April, 1961, the Soviet Union launched Yuri Gagarin into orbit. A human had finally left the planet. 
and he was a Russian. For NASA, this was a massive setback. In retrospect, it's easy for us to see the situation as two teams pushing one another to be the best they could be, but for NASA at the time, it felt more like they were in a one-time-only, winner-take-all, best-of-seven championship series, and the other guys were ahead by three games to none. And then it got worse. Again. The team arrived at the Cape for the first Atlas orbital launch to find that the range had been closed to them because of the Bay of Pigs crisis. This was the crisis that was precipitated by the CIA-supported attempt, uh, attempted invasion of Cuba by a force of Cuban exiles, which failed in spectacular and public fashion. It was yet another humiliation for the United States, and it added more weight of expectations to the Project Mercury team. Gene Krantz recalls, quote, I find it difficult today to convey the intense frustration and near despair as we picked ourselves up after each setback, determined to break the jinx of the program. In those dark days, our only thought was, this time, it has to work, unquote. And so the stage was set for the first test of the Mercury Network, which had been operational for less than a month. And on the morning of the 25th of April, 1961, NASA launched Mercury Atlas III, which was to test the system by sending an unmanned capsule into orbit. The flight went well for the first 43 seconds. Then the rocket failed to initiate its roll and pitch program, meaning that instead of tilting over and going downrange to pick up speed until it reached orbital velocity, it just kept going straight up. In the end, the range safety officer had to destroy the rocket to avoid the potential of it coming back to Earth in an unexpected and populated area. It was not a good day for the Mercury control team. They had not been able to test their global communications and control systems. They were behind. They had dropped the ball, and the world was watching. And all they had to do next was launch a human being into space from U.S. soil for the first time. And get him back alive. It was not a time for the faint of heart. As Gene Kranz recalls, we had no time to lick our wounds or feel sorry for ourselves, and no one had much to say. Numb with shock, frustration, and anger, we were uncertain about the impact of this spectacular failure on the entire program. We did know that it would mean more time at the Cape, more time away from our families. But did we really know what the hell we were doing? The Atlas was key to orbital flight, and we had racked up two Atlas failures and three Atlas missions. But we didn't have the luxury of a day off. We debriefed, wrote our reports, and on April 26, 1961, returned to Mercury Control. Unquote. Grant is unsparing in his praise for the leadership of NASA and the Mercury program at this time. In leaders like Bob Gilruth, Walt Williams, the Merc Pro Mercury Project Director, and Chris Kraft, the Mission Operations Director and Flight Director, he identifies the key qualities of being able to challenge the team to perform at the highest level while also insulating them as much as possible from the distractions coming from outside the program. And those distractions were legion. The U.S. and the world media were literally in a frenzy to quite literally see who would be the first American in space. In fact, not even the mission control team knew who the first astronaut would be. The press was scheduled to find out which astronaut had been chosen to be the first, 
when he walked out of the hangar and onto the van that would take him to the launch pad on the morning of the launch. Only senior NASA managers and the astronauts themselves knew who the silver-clad figure would be. Of course, the competition to break the story first was intense, and it led members of the press to try all sorts of tricks and stunts to see if they could find a crack in NASA's wall of silence. Many of the press were unconvinced that the mission control team did not know, and so the press frequently sought them out at their motels and where they were when they were out and about in Cocoa Beach, and this led the team to turn even more inward, to spend more of their free time with one another at their hotel, usually the Holiday Inn at Cocoa Beach. It certainly increased the feeling of a siege mentality, the feeling that it was quite literally them against a doubting and even hostile world. And so it was the tensions were running pretty high on the morning of May the 2nd, as flight controllers reported to their stations a little after midnight. Alas, their ordeal was not quite over. At 7.25 that morning, the flight was scrubbed for 48 hours because of bad weather. But because they had gotten so close, the press had actually managed to catch sight of Al Shepard in his spacesuit, so at least that news was out, which decreased the tension a little. On May the 4th, the launch was scrubbed again for weather. So, early in the morning of May 5th, Gene Krantz went out to get into his car and noted that the weather was windy, but it was clearing. And as he drove out of the parking lot of the motel, he looked at the launch pad in the distance. The lights were on. This meant that the launch was a go. As he drove north along Highway A1A towards Mercury Control, he drove towards a date with Destiny. And as I write these words, I'm getting a little bit of a chill down my spine, because I have made that same drive, as, as has everyone who has ever worked the case. Although I knew Cocoa Beach in the 1990s and the early 2000s, Gene Krantz's description of it from 1960 still rings true to me. As I read his words, I can see the strip lined with restaurants, a few upscale but mostly local hangouts, the hotels lining the beach, the sand dunes, the palmetto palms. I can smell it, but mostly I can feel it. Even at midnight in May, it would have been warm and moist. The air would have been, as the saying goes, pregnant with promise. And that is where we're going to have to leave it for this episode, folks. Now, it would be a cliffhanger if it had not all happened 60 years ago, but that moment of time was a very important moment for Gene Kranz and the rest of the NASA space program. Before the 5th of May, 1961, NASA had been in the business of flying rockets to space. On the 5th of May, 1961, and forever after, NASA would be in the business of flying people to space, and that has made all the difference. So, next time we'll pick up the story of the first U.S. manned spaceflight. The great space race is about to heat up, and John F. Kennedy is about to raise the stakes. In barely eight years, NASA will go from launching a single human on a 15-minute trip to space to taking one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Tune in next time to hear more about the people who made that happen. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you can join us again in a couple of weeks for another episode of Terranaut. If you'd like to support the show, feel free to leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher app, respond with some feedback, or recommend us to a friend. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Come on, let's keep the chatter down.